invited once, but this is my third time, so you honor me indeed. I have eight followers in the whole world, and they're all here today. <laughs> they are. Uh, the Paddens, Ernie and Margaret. Ernie Padden was the church secretary at Westminster Chapel uh, when uh, I first went. He tells a story that someone recommended to him uh, that Westminster Chapel invite me to preach one Sunday because they were three years without a minister. And uh, so we called Mr. Patton, said, you ought to have R.T. Kendall uh, preach for you some Sunday. Nothing was expected more than I would just preach a Sunday because they were looking for people on Sundays. And then so Ernie said he called Dr. Lloyd-Jones and says, we're told we might have an R.T. Kendall to preach for us. You know him. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, oh yes, have him. Theologian, you know, but have him. <laughs> Those are his words. And uh, then I didn't dream that one day they would ask me to stay. We stayed 25 years to the day. And two men in here, Graham Patton and Bill Reynolds, I made them deacons while I was there. And uh, they've been friends over the years. And Ernie and Margaret and Bill and Rachel uh, and Graham and Philippa, uh, like family. So I just you will forgive me for making over them. And Robert and Winnie, they, uh, you were in that eight when I mentioned eight. I counted you. I don't know if there's anybody else here. I don't have, haven't had a chance to look around. But thank you, Aunt. Uh, you might like to know, in 1991, I was in California, and a man that I'd never met, his name is John Paul Jackson, uh, it turns out later he was one of the Kansas City prophets, but I didn't know that then, and uh, had an unusual prophetic gift, and he didn't know who I was, I didn't know who he was, but he said in 1991 that one day... I would have influence in South Africa. And uh, I didn't think a whole lot about that. Uh, but in the last six years, I've been there eight times, and uh, meeting Ant is the result of that. And uh, places I go in the world are from the South Africa uh, contingency. Uh, Canada, Chicago, uh, Middle East, Qatar, Dubai, I'll go to India next month. And it all from, started with the South Africans. So, uh, part of the reason I'm here today. Well, I've prayed uh, hard over uh, recent months what to speak on. I pray every day to know when to say yes, when to say no to an invitation. And then when I say yes, to know exactly what I should preach on. And in my old age, I only want to be a blessing. Uh, Louise sends her love. She comes with me to England maybe once a year, uh, and she'll be back with me in May. We've been married 54 years. That's pretty good, isn't it? How many of you could say that? But Ernie and Margaret, how many years have you been married? 64. Ernie Patton. Has anybody here ever heard of G. Campbell Morgan? Know that name? Well, G. Campbell Morgan put Martin Lloyd-Jones in Westminster Chapel. Dr. Lloyd-Jones put me there. But 
I think Ernie Pat is the only man alive that's heard G. Campbell Morgan. That makes you very old, you know. <laughs> Thanks again, Aunt and Helen. You know, every time I look at her and I look at you, I want to ask, how did you get her? But they ask that of me when they see Louise. I want to deal today, uh, this morning, with a passage in 1 Samuel, chapter 16. And I'll be speaking on the theme, the anointing, which I will define and uh, base, though, largely on this passage. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Before I read on, I want to point out something about this verse. You have a description of yesterday's man, today's man, tomorrow's man, all in one verse. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, yesterday's man, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? He's speaking to Samuel, a type of today's man or woman. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons, tomorrow's man, David, to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. The Lord said, but Samuel said to him, 
the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching or teaching of this part of his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present, that their perception of what I say will be received and applied and grasped as you intend. And cleanse my tongue and my heart that I might be cleansed to be your transparent instrument to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. May this be a word that is fitly spoken, timely, life-changing, and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to deal with this word anointing. It's a tricky word because it's used in different ways. David would regard King Saul as the Lord's anointed, even though the anointing, in the way I shall define it, had lifted from Saul. And that is what made Saul yesterday's man. Now, it's interesting if you look at verse 1 and then verse 13. Uh, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king? And then in verse 13, the Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Contrast the two. Yesterday's man still wore the crown, but had lost the anointing. David was given the anointing, but had no crown. Which would you rather have, the anointing without the crown, or the crown without the anointing? Good choice. Wearing the crown means you've got the prestige, the power, the pomp, the authority, the platform, the people, and they respect you and look up to you. And that was King Saul, and, and he liked it that way. He wouldn't accept the fact that he had lost the anointing, and he become unteachable and unreachable. But now we come to David. No crown, no platform, no following. He was a nobody, but he had the anointing. Well, some might say, well, that means he was ready to be king. Wrong. 
The fact that you have an anointing doesn't mean that you're ready for the work that you've been earmarked for. David was not ready to be king. And you may have an anointing. And that anointing is real and solid and is there. And hopefully there to stay. It doesn't mean that you are ready for the work to which you've been called. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say to me, kindest and the severest word he ever gave me. I quote, The worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he's ready. And perhaps there are those here today, you have the anointing, and you're waiting for your time to come, and you cry out, how long, how long, how long, how long? And David must have wondered whether it was ever going to happen, for it meant he would have 20 years without the crown. King Saul had another 20 years without the anointing. So when I use the phrase, yesterday's man, we're not talking about age. We're not talking about retirement. We're not talking about being made redundant. We're talking about having lost the anointing. That is what I mean by yesterday's man. And the irony is, you can be young and become yesterday's man. King Saul was only 40, and he was yesterday's man. You can be old and be tomorrow's man. God didn't use Moses until he was 80. I find that encouraging. <laughs> to think that God isn't finished with me yet. So good to be in England. I said to the Paddens a few minutes ago, if I had a choice, I don't know that I do, but if I had a choice, when I'm buried, I'd like my body to be buried in Kentucky and my heart taken and put it under the pulpit at Westminster Chapel. <laughs> Frederick Chopin did that. Did you know that, the composer? I've been to Warsaw. There's a church in Warsaw. His heart is buried there. His body is in France. What? David Lingston, that's right. Oh, that's two. Let me be the third. <laughs> the anointing. The general term is it's the power of the Holy Spirit, but I want to use it in a different way. The anointing is what comes easy for you. If you flow in your anointing, you will be at home. It will be easy. You go outside your anointing, you struggle. And fatigue sets in when you go outside your anointing. Live within your anointing, you are as at home wherever you are. I'll be honest with you, I'm at home right now. This is me. This is what I do. This is easy for me. But there are things that I cannot do. And I see other people with their gifting, I think, Oh, I wish I could do that. How do they do it? But that's not me. And the hardest thing in the world sometimes is to come to terms with your anointing, with particular reference to the limits of your anointing. 
You've got to recognize that your anointing, and it's a word that can be used interchangeably sometimes with gifting. Your gifting has its limits. The trouble is we don't like to admit there are limits to our gifting. We want to think we can do everything. Now, the word anointing, uh, is uh, the root of it is creo in the Greek, from which we get the word Christ, the anointed one. Now, I don't want to bore you with a lot of Greek, but uh, one or two interesting things is there are other Greek words that sound a whole lot like chrisma, chrisma, from which we get, uh, the, that's the word for anointing, from creo. But then there is charisma, and that's a different word altogether. And that often refers to a personality, charisma. Uh, some 50 years ago, it became vogue with uh, journalists in America. They would determine which presidential candidate had charisma. They said John F. Kennedy had charisma. Nixon didn't have it. And uh, uh, Bill Clinton had charisma. Uh, Barack Obama has charisma. Uh, those who have it usually get elected. Wouldn't have anything to do with their ability sometimes, but a certain type of personality appeals. And you find that there are those in the church, and they, they want that. And I think a lot of ministers want charisma. And in a sense, it is a God-given thing. But that's not the anointing we're talking about today. And there is also the word charismata, still a different word. It means grace gift. And the scary thing about charismata is that it has nothing to do with the anointing in the sense that I shall use it. Because when I speak of the anointing, I'm talking about the presence of the mind of the Spirit. That's what I mean by the anointing, the presence of the mind of the Spirit. And as long as you can hear God's voice and sense His presence, when you know what to say, what not to say, it's the same thing with wisdom. Wisdom is the presence of the mind of the Spirit. And that's the anointing that we seek for and covet above all else. Not charisma. Not charismata. As a matter of fact, the charismata, the gifts, are irrevocable. No sign of spirituality. You can have the greatest prophetic gift of all. As a matter of fact, you might like to know. I won't mention his name. I uh, could do, because it's, it's, it's out in the open. Uh, but uh, one man, very well known for a prophetic gift, one of the Kansas City prophets, not John Paul Jackson, another one who wanted to be a member of Westminster Chapel more than anything in the world, and we bent the rules and let him in. And uh, what a gift. Turns out that he had a double life. He'd fooled me. And... Uh, I met with him about four months ago, and he wanted to be associated with me, and I can't have it, but I wanted to love him, and I had one question for him. I said, 
in all that you, your carries on, did your gift function? What do you suppose was his answer? Yes. Yes. And you see, people will take a person's gift as a sign of their godliness, spirituality. King Saul, on his way to kill David, prophesied. And they said, is Saul among the prophets? If you had been there and heard King Saul, you would think, whew, what a man of God. And yet, he was yesterday's man. And so, this is an important word for anybody here, whether you're in ministry or not, because you want to be today's man or woman, tomorrow's man or woman. And to be yesterday's man or woman means that people don't recognize that you've lost this. They didn't know about King Saul. Only Samuel knew. Only Samuel knew that King Saul was yesterday's man. Everybody else, clapping their hands, they thought he was wonderful. And you have those in the ministry today they're following, think they're marvelous. And they, these men, they have a platform, they've got a mailing list, and they've got a following. But the average person doesn't recognize when the anointing is lifted. Many years ago, an Episcopal priest over a nationwide broadcast in America made the statement, if the Holy Spirit completely left the church today, 90% of the work of the church would go right on as if nothing happened. And this is true with an individual, that you can lose this aspect of the Holy Spirit, the charismata, as did King Saul, and yet King Saul functioned. And so the fact that your gift functions is no sign of the anointing of the presence of the mind of the Spirit. Some years ago, a Chinese pastor was given a tour of American churches, and he saw all the super churches. And at the end of the tour, they said to this, America, uh, this Chinese pastor, well, tell us, what is your impression of Christianity in America, American Christianity? His reply, I am amazed at how much you accomplish without God. So that's it. So much of what we're seeing happening, there's a natural explanation for now, this matter of accepting your anointing, it means that you admit when you've got it without being proud, but it also means admitting what you don't have without being demoralized, to know that we all have our limits. Uh, every person uh, has an anointing. You may say, well, I've got nothing. You do. There's something you can do Nobody else can do. That is unique with you. When God made you, he threw the mold away. 
It's only a matter of your coming to terms with the way God has made you, led you, and brought you to a place. And it may be humbling that things aren't turning out as you wish. I used to talk about the Peter Principle at Westminster Chapel, a book popular 30 years ago. The thesis of that book is every person is promoted to the level of his incompetence. That people have jobs today they shouldn't have. They've been elevated. They get a promotion, higher income, more prestige, but they have nervous breakdowns and they are exhausted and fatigued. Why? Because they've been promoted to the level of their incompetence. The Holy Spirit will never promote you to the level of your incompetence. But if you've got a job you're unable to do, it means you've made yourself that, or somebody put you there, but not the Holy Spirit. But if you're led of the Holy Spirit, you will always be able to function without fatigue. John Calvin called it special grace in nature. What you are made of by birth. Theologians call it common grace. What's that? It's not ordinary, but it is grace given commonly to everybody. And so it comes at your birth and the way you were brought up at the natural level. People that aren't Christians have this. Common grace. It's what keeps the world from being topsy-turvy. The reason we have doctors, nurses, traffic lights, policemen, common grace. And you can thank God for the fact that the world is no worse than it is. And your natural ability uh, is part of special grace in nature. Your IQ, your ability to function on that job. You say, well, God gave me this gift. True. But it's not because you're a Christian. You would have had it anyway. And there are those who have great gifts. They're not even saved. Albert Einstein had an IQ, I'm told, of 212. The average is 100. 110, you're bright. 120, you're very bright. 130, genius. Einstein, 212. It's off the charts. But he wasn't Christian. Or take some composer like Tchaikovsky or Rachmaninoff. Or my favorite composers of the Russians, for some reason. I, the sound of Rachmaninoff. But these weren't saved men. But their gifts were God-given. And so, with you, you have a gift. You say, it's because I'm a Christian. No, you would have had it anyway. Once in a while, a person with unusual gifting is also a Christian. They're rare. Like the St. Augustines, the Thomas Aquinas, the Calvins, the Luthers, the Jonathan Edwards. Unusual men. High watermarks in church history when gifted men are also converted and given an anointing, and they are rare. But most of us are ordinary people 
and we need to find our niche. And it means coming to terms with what you are good at and what you're not good at. I will never be offered professor of mathematics at King's College London or shall we say Imperial College that's the sciences you can be sure that you'll never hear Professor R.T. Kendall at Imperial College teaching math when I was in high school I failed algebra didn't make a C didn't make a D F failed and the funny thing is some years later uh, I heard that in a little town near Ashland they needed a teacher the next day to uh, because the t- teacher was sick and they needed a substitute a friend of mine said would you like to earn $14 tomorrow I said yes said, well they need a teacher I said well what do I have to teach well 9 o'clock spelling I can do that 10 o'clock uh, uh, literature I can do that 11 o'clock geography, I can do that. 12 o'clock lunch, I can do that. 1 o'clock algebra. So I can't do that. Don't worry, just the teacher will have a note and tell them the kids what pages to do and she'll be back the next day. So 1 o'clock comes, I say, class, uh, your teacher's sick today. Uh, you are to do pages 52, 53, 54. Get on with your work. I sit down. Mm, I can teach algebra. <laughs> Until one kid walks up to me and says, Teacher, how do you do this? Listen. Your teacher has her way of explaining this particular problem. And when she comes back tomorrow, she'll explain. If I explained it my way, it would, she'd be upset with me. Because this is it. She'll tell you tomorrow. So you get on to the next one. There's a kid over here. So, Teacher, how do you do this? And it's the same one. After the third person with the same problem. Must have been really hard. They all look the same to me. I said, look, class, if you don't understand one, just go to the next. Your teacher will be back tomorrow. She was sick again the next day. (laughs) I had to go through all that again. But I was never invited back. (laughs) There are some things you can't do. And do you know how King Saul became yesterday's man? He would not accept the limits of his anointing. You turn back two pages to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And it is when Saul was told to wait for Samuel to show up and they would offer the burnt offerings. It's in 1 Samuel 13. In verse 9, when Saul got impatient and says, Samuel should be here, he's not here, bring me the burnt offerings. Whoa, your majesty, don't think you're supposed to do that. Don't tell me what I'm not supposed to do. I'm king, aren't I? Bring me the burnt offerings. Well, no one said anything. In that moment, King Saul went right against Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Makes it very clear. 
that only the person called of God can do it. Samuel says, I'm king, bring me the burnt offerings. And so he did it. He did it. He says, don't tell me I can't, watch me. And just as he finished, Samuel turns up, goes out to greet him. And Samuel says, what have you done? Saul replied, well, I, I saw the men were scattering and uh, you didn't come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at mismatch. And I thought, well, the Philistines will come down against me. I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled. Listen to that. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. Have you ever had anybody say to you, well, God told me to do this. But well, wait a minute, is that in the Bible? I don't care whether it's in the Bible or not, God told me. And this is King Saul. I felt compelled. Let me tell you the quickest way to become yesterday's man or woman, and that's when you put yourself above Holy Scripture and you determine that you're qualified to do something that you have not been called to do. And that was King Saul's fatal mistake. Here's a little poem. There is some place for you to fill, some work for you to do, that no one can or ever will do quite as well as you. It may lie close along your way, some homely little duty that only needs your touch, your sway, to blossom into beauty. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And king Saul would not accept the limits of his anointing. Wasn't enough for him to be king. He wanted to be priest. He wanted to be everything. And you've got people like this in ministry with such big egos. They want to do everything. They're afraid that they'll let somebody else do something and they'll get credit for it. They want to be the big cheese. And this is why churches are in disarray, jealousy in leadership, insecurity. Well, Jonathan Edwards taught us that the task of every generation is to discover in which direction the sovereign Redeemer is moving, then move in that direction. We need to know what God is saying today. In the case of King Saul, he lost the anointing, but he wore the crown. Well, David was given the anointing, and the first fruit of his anointing was killing Goliath. And, uh, uh, and after King Saul was thrilled with David killing Goliath, he put him in the military, made him an officer. But then something happened in a short period of time, and that is when the young ladies with their flutes and tambourines came out dancing. Saul has slain his thousands, 
David his tens of thousands, and everything changed from that moment. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. This happens in leadership, where leaders are so insecure and afraid of anybody, any rising star that might get the credit. I see Nick and, Nick and Hazel. I didn't know you were here. I made a mistake. I've got ten followers. <laughs> Great to see you. The worst thing that can happen is for a man to succeed before he's ready. King Saul had a brilliant beginning. Listen to what power he had early on in 1 Samuel 11. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the auction of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people. They turned out as one man. That's the kind of authority that he had. And when you think, what a brilliant beginning. But you see, a brilliant beginning does not necessarily mean a brilliant ending. And uh, what went wrong is that King Saul became jealous. He took himself too seriously. And one interesting thing, Saul even had a second chance. It comes out of 1 Samuel 15. Won't go into all that, but the day came when Saul sealed it and was permanently yesterday's man. And so a good beginning doesn't mean a good ending. Some of you will uh, know the cartoon Yogi Bear. How many of you knew that Yogi Bear is a cartoon, but it, the origin is a man by the name of Yogi Berra, baseball catcher for the New York Yankees. And he's still alive. He lives in Montclair, New Jersey. I'm trying to meet him. I'm serious. I was there the other day, and uh, he would have seen me over the Christmas holidays, but he was away. So I'm going to go back, and uh, because he's the one that coined the phrase, it ain't over till it's over. And he became known for that, because uh, he knew in baseball, uh, well, you deprived people wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. Let me <laughs> change the subject. Uh, at Wimbledon, uh, you, you hear them, uh, three championship points, and everybody's on the edge of the seats, of their seats, and the man's or the woman's about to win the championship. Oops, two championship points. Oh dear, deuce, and it reverses. And the championship is lost just that quick. It's not over till it's over. And I want to write a book one day 
and I'm hoping to get Yogi Berra to go with me on it. I think I might. And uh, call it, it's not over till it's over. Ending well. I want to write a book on finishing well. Uh, John Stott, who died a year or so ago, uh, my friend Lyndon Bowering went to see John Stott. And just two months before he died, John Stott whispered to Lyndon, pray that I will finish well. I want to finish well. Well, as Rob Parsons would put it, it's the second half that counts. Your team may be ahead, but it's the second half. And as I said, age is not relevant. What happened to King Saul is seen in an understanding of Hebrews chapter 6. Now we're going to go deep for a few minutes. Hebrews chapter 6. Some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Others may not be so familiar with it. I want to read to you. When the writer says in Hebrews 6 verse 4, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the world to come, powers of the coming age, if they fall away, and the Greek literally reads, it's past participle, those having fallen away, to be brought back to repentance because they crucified to their loss the Son of God all over again and subject Him to public disgrace. This has been theological back, uh, battleground for Calvinists and Arminians. Uh, Calvinists are threatened by this passage because Calvinists teach you can't fall away. Uh, this verse says you can. Arminians don't like this verse because they teach that you can fall away, but you can get it back. This verse says you can't. What does it mean? I'm not trying to score theological points, but I'll tell you exactly what it means. This is describing saved people who lose their inheritance because they became so stone deaf to the Holy Spirit. They couldn't hear God speak again. King Saul will be in heaven. Dr. Lloyd-Jones believed seeing King Saul was a saved man. He will be in heaven. But what happened was that he became stone deaf to the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't listen to Samuel anymore. Unteachable, unreachable. Those from Westminster Chapel will recall that we had a, a ministry to the deaf. It all started uh, one summer when, uh, when we were on holiday in Florida that Louise punctured an eardrum. And uh, when she got back to Westminster Chapel, first Sunday back, uh, just happened to sit next to a deaf lady. Uh, and uh, immediately Louise knew she should learn signing. And as a result of puncturing her eardrum, uh, she decided to learn signing. And when we left Westminster Chapel, 
uh, on Sunday nights, there would be sometimes 12 or 15 deaf people to come to, to hear the gospel. And those were wonderful days. The point I want to make is we learned a little bit about deafness. Sometimes deafness comes from an accident, but often it comes gradually. Uh, for example, the first step is when someone speaks to you, you put your hand over your ear and say, would you say that again? And then you get a hearing aid. And then a stronger hearing aid. And then the strongest possible hearing aid. The worst scenario is that you become profoundly deaf, stone deaf, you can hear nothing. The writer says in chapter 5, you are already dull of hearing. You are hard of hearing. But they could still hear, but only just. And he's warning them. And this is why in chapter 3, you have the example of Israel, where God said, they have not known my ways. If anyone hear my voice, as long as you can hear God's voice. But the worst thing is when you can't hear God speak anymore. And this is what was about to happen to these Hebrew Christians. But at the time, they could still hear. I won't be giving an appeal today for all those who want to become yesterday's men and women. Uh, come forward and stand over here and we'll pray for you to become yesterday's man. I don't think anybody wants that. But let me tell you how you become yesterday's man or woman. First, you put yourself above the word and say, well, that should apply to everybody else. But in my case, God understands my temperament, my background, my culture, and you think you are the exception. That's the devil. We all must be subservient to Holy Scripture. There are no exceptions. Saul thought he was an exception. Another sign of being yesterday's man is when you're consumed with jealousy. This is what happened to King Saul. Don't want to give anybody a guilt trip right now because you have a problem with jealousy. We all have a problem with jealousy. But in the case of King Saul, all he could think about now was David. He was consumed with David, how to get rid of him. He lived to get rid of David. And you find church leaders like this, they're consumed with one person. They want the world, the world to know how bad this person is. Consumed with the threat of one person. We're told that when President Richard Nixon flew out to the South Pacific to welcome the first man who had walked on the moon back to earth, and he was there to say this is the greatest thing since creation, but those around him said he was consumed with one man, Teddy Kennedy, senator from Massachusetts, who the night before had driven on a little bridge in Chappaquiddick with Mary Jo Kopechny, and the car went off the bridge, and she drowned, and he swam for his life. And Nixon was so excited about it because that was his enemy. And he was more consumed with what was going on with 
Teddy Kennedy back in Massachusetts than the man who's now coming down from space. And this is how jealousy will make a person lopsided in his interest. You're thinking about one person. Yesterday's man cannot keep his word. Jonathan, Saul's own son, pleaded with his father, please, why are you worried about David? David is a loyal subject. And Saul swore an oath to Jonathan that he wouldn't lay a finger on David from that day. Broke the oath before the day was over. Still tried to kill him. Yesterday's man loses integrity, can't keep his word. He trusts his gift, not the grace of God. And the thing about yesterday's man is he's not accountable. He's not accountable. The man that I referred to earlier, that I didn't give his name, after he became minister of Westminster Chapel, I noticed he didn't return my phone calls to him. And I, I, I couldn't find out what he was doing. Finally, he comes to London just a year or so before we retire. And in our flat in Westminster, I looked at him and I said, you're not accountable to anybody that I know of. I'm supposed to be your minister. I don't know anything about you. Something is not right. You're going to become yesterday's man, as surely as I'm looking at you. He wept. I thought, oh good. The next day I could tell by his spirit, he hadn't changed. King Saul wept. When he saw that he was found out, but didn't stop him. You need to be accountable to people, those who know where you are at any moment, how you're spending your time when you're alone. Let me tell you the famous last words of yesterday's man. I'm accountable to God. That's what yesterday's man will always say. I'm accountable to God. I don't need to be accountable to you. I'm accountable to God. Listen to me. If you think you are only accountable to God, I have news for you. You're not that spiritual. You need to be accountable to those around you who know what you are doing, what you are like. Saul's ending was horrible. He ended up, as you probably know, taking his own life. Well, most of us don't want the feeling of being irrelevant, much less yesterday's man. But I want to move now to today's man. And that is symbolized, typified by Samuel. And so the Lord said to Samuel, fill your horn, be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Today's man. And I address all of you 
as today's men or tomorrow's. I don't think yesterday's man or woman is here. Might be. But I spent time on that so that you might see the danger signs. Let me tell you how to know that you're not yesterday's man. If, as I spoke in the last few minutes, you found yourself saying, Oh Lord, could that be me? Could that be me? It's a good sign that it's not you. But if it goes through one ear, out the other, it doesn't bother me. I don't know what this is all about. Not a good sign. But if you can hear his voice and you think, Lord, don't let that be me. Good sign. You see, every one of the disciples at the Last Supper said, Lord, is it I? Is it I? They were afraid it could be them. There was one there who knew it wasn't him, or it was him. Today's man. How do you stay today's man and don't become yesterday's man? And the answer is that you're willing continually to go outside your comfort zone. God will require all of us to go outside our comfort zone. And you would think that in Samuel's case, he wouldn't have to do that because his reputation was made, he was a legend, he had been faithful to God over the years, and you think, well, God's not going to require the great Samuel in his old age to have to go outside his comfort zone Give him a break. Let him have a long holiday in retirement. But even Samuel is told, go anoint the next king. And Samuel says, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. How would you like the task of anointing a man king when there's already a king alive and well? That's dangerous stuff. But God made Samuel go outside his comfort zone. I remember at Westminster Chapel, we called Arthur Blessed. Uh, and the uh, best decision I made in 25 years. But I'll tell you, I was in more trouble than anything I ever did in my life. Arthur Blessed, he's the man that, uh, one of the founders of the Jesus movement in Hollywood. Uh, he rented a little building or store room next door to a strip joint and uh, uh, built a 16-foot wooden cross and put it on the wall so that everybody coming in would know why they didn't sell liquor, but only sold orange juice and coffee. In fact, they didn't sell it. They would get people that were going into the strip joint to come into his place. That was what they called it. Uh, and there Arthur would lead dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens to the Lord. Arthur said, if I knew I was going to have to carry it one day, I wouldn't have made it so big. But one day, according to Arthur, praying at five o'clock in the morning, not because he got up early, but because he was up all night praying, 
He said, the Lord told him, take the cross down, carry it on foot around the world. Two days before he was to start, on December 26th, 1969, he was taken to hospital because he had a blood clot in his brain, aneurysm. And the doctor said, don't move. You could die any minute. And Arthur said, are you saying that at any minute I could be with Jesus? That's exactly what we're saying. Glory to God. On the 26th, two days later, he got up out of bed, checked himself out of the hospital, and started carrying his cross. He still has the aneurysm in his brain 40 years later. I see him now once in a while. Go on TV with him. They laughed him to scorn. Took him two years to go from Hollywood to Washington, D.C. When he came through Columbus, Ohio, a man by the name of Phil Roberts went out to see this Jesus freak and was so convicted. He was not only converted, but called to the ministry. Phil Roberts has preached at Westminster Chapel, became president of Midwestern Baptist Seminary in Kansas City. The people that were converted through that man and we had him at Westminster Chapel, turned us upside down. We began our pilot light ministry. But we went through so much turmoil that I said, never again will I do anything controversial while I'm at Westminster Chapel. I've paid my dues. I showed I would do it no more. And God said, really? <laughs> and in a few years, I had to do it all over Again, in fact, the greatest, most delicate challenge I had is the last three months I was there, I had Rodney Howard Brown. The last three months. And he could have ruined me just before I leave. I thought, it's okay if that's what God wants. I had to come to the place that I did not value my reputation. I was going outside my comfort zone then, and having to do it to this day. And maybe you think, well, I'm old and I don't have to do anything more for God. Big mistake. The way you become yesterday's man is when you want to coast and think that you've got no more urgent responsibility before God. It means bearing the stigma. The word stigma comes from a pure Greek word. It was in the ancient Hellenistic world, a tattoo, a mark, often burned in the body with a hot iron. It became a distinguishing mark. The man who bore the stigma was everywhere regarded as distinct. It was usually marked on slaves who ran away uh, or for stealing. And Paul knew that word, and he says, that's a word I'm going to use. He said, I bear in my body the stigma, stigmata, the marks of the Lord Jesus, to show that he was a follower of Jesus. And you see, the flesh will always try to destigmatize the gospel. And the gospel carries with it a stigma. And we must be willing to bear the stigma. And it is a part of maintaining the anointing. When you are willing to be embarrassed, 
That is what the word stigma comes down to. Embarrassment. And none of us like to be embarrassed. We want respectability. We want people to look up to us and admire us. The truth is, a stigma will always be a part of the anointing. Uh, it may be the withholding of vindication, uh, where things are said about you and your first inclination is try to clear your name and set the record straight. But the moment you try to do that, you will destigmatize and lose the anointing. Be willing for them to say what they will. Be willing to be laughed at. And I never will forget, invited Arthur to, when he came to Westminster Chapel, to address our young people. And the idea was we would uh, uh, get all fired up one Friday night in the old church parlor. Uh, Forty young people came, and Arthur uh, got them all fired up, and we were going to go to Page Street, a mile away from the chapel. We couldn't knock on doors around Westminster, luxury flats, couldn't get in, but you could go to Page Street, knock on doors, and get in. And that's where we're all going. So after an hour, we all headed out, and Arthur and I were the last to walk out, and everybody went to Page Street, and right there at the Zebra Crossing... Arthur saw three people standing. I thought, oh dear, I know what Arthur's going to do, and he, we need to get going real quick. I said, Arthur, Page Street is this way. He ignored me, went right to these three people. Two of them showed interest. And after ten minutes, two of them prayed to receive the Lord. And I should be excited about it. All I'm doing is looking at my watch. I said, we need to get to Page Street. And then after they prayed... Arthur pulled out another tract. See, now I want to show you what's just happened. Uh, read your Bible every day. Pray daily. Witness for Christ daily. Your relationship with other people has changed. You're a new person. And, and finally he finished. I said, Arthur, I grabbed him on the elbow. We've got to go this way. He ignored me again. Saw another man coming from the direction of Buckingham Palace. I knew that man because he used to come to the chapel. And I thought, old oh, Arthur's going to have a hard time with this guy. In 20 minutes, Arthur had him on his knees. He prayed to receive the Lord. He turned to me. He said, Dr. Kendall, I don't know where this Page Street is, but you've got the world right here at your steps of your church. Why are you going way down to Page Street when you've got the world right here? I died a thousand deaths in that moment because I knew what I was going to have to do. I had a vision, I think you could call it that, a pilot light, like a light that stays lit in a cooker or oven, day and night. That's what I saw. Until that night, I'll never forget it as long as I live, my aspiration, this will not impress you, my aspiration was to be a world-class theologian what it was. In that moment, my ambitions, plans, and wishes at his feet in ashes lay. And I knew that from that day I had to be an evangelist and just talk to anybody about the Lord. The first Saturday, Arthur 
went to another place to Norway, I think it was. I rounded up everybody I could find that might join me on the streets. Found six people. And our pilot light ministry was born. I could spend the rest of the day telling you about people converted. Letters I still get from tracts we gave out. We were never to be the same again. Do you talk about embarrassment? Here I was, the minister. Out there on the steps, they would say, G. Campbell Morgan wouldn't do that. Dr. Lloyd-Jones wouldn't do that. And you're doing it? And it was embarrassing. And I've had to do it ever since. The stigma. I do not want to be yesterday's man. I want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. We're going to take a break. And 15 minutes after you've had coffee, we'll come back and we'll continue with this subject, the anointing. Bless you.